Welcome to Incoming with Margie Avery, where we consider life and how to get through it happily. Hello and welcome to Incoming. I'm your host, Margie Avery. Thank you for listening. No, it's been a little inconsistent lately. I really am working on getting more consistent with this. Just I've had a little bit of life going on. And I did promise that I'm going to get into that a bit with you guys, but not today. Today, I want to talk about, oh, let's see, current affairs. That's always a good one, isn't it? And boy, do we have some affairs going on. I am not a super political person. I don't follow every detail of these things the way that some do. So, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get some remarks that something's not accurate. But I'm, I'm prefacing this with this is a big picture view I'm taking and something to maybe get you guys to think about a bit. I read this book. It's called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. And I'm going to apologize that I'm probably going to butcher this guy's name, but it's Anand, A-N-A-N-D. And I think it's Jiri Haradas, G-I-R-I-D-H-A-R-A-D-A-S. It's a good book. You might want to read it. It's available on iBooks and all the usual places. You can also get a hard copy, but... It's a little over 300 pages. He spends most of it giving very intelligent examples of the thinking of wealthy in today's society and essentially how the wealthy have created problems and then to sort of assuage their deep-seated guilt about it they want to stand up on platforms and give us solutions to the problems that they created. And it's it's interesting. I wish he had possibly delved a little bit into even his own opinion of some solutions to the problems, but it's more example after example of, of where this is going on in our society today. And I've talked in other episodes about People who I believe are well-intentioned, like, you know, the royal family, Prince Harry, Prince Charles, Prince William, and their initiatives about global warming and the earth, but yet the hypocritical way that they live their own lives. And I've done a whole show about that type of thing. We don't need to recap that. But the point is here, it has come to a point where it seems that real efforts on improving the the condition of the earth and how we care for it and how we conduct ourselves with it in order to preserve it has turned into a money-making venture. Initiatives going through our political process now are geared at billions and billions of taxpayer dollars that are going to land in the hands of certain industries and benefit those individuals, but we need to ask ourselves, is it really going to do something about the problem? You know, if I turn off the water when I'm brushing my teeth, is that really going to do something up against 
billionaires floating around in mega yachts and living in homes that are 150 times larger than they need and having swimming pools living in the middle of the desert and taking huge private helicopters between their various mansions or to a private airstrip where they now board a private jet? Or how about industry and the toxic waste that they dump into our air, our soil, and our water every day and the efforts to really genuinely do something about that have been like not even a Band-Aid on the problem because they have big money and they contribute heavily to big campaigns and they get what they want in the end. So we need to stop and think about these things. You know, there are companies, startups that are working on alternative uses for a lot of our waste, for the batteries and these battery-operated cars that when they're no good for a car anymore, but they do have life left in them, what can we do with them? But we are pushing out this product before the other industry is up and running and widespread, which is how do we reduce, reuse, recycle this stuff rather than having it become the new junkyard material? Instead of junk cars piled up in a junkyard, you have junk batteries piled up in a junkyard. And what about the mining that decimates areas to get the compounds and, and minerals and metals and whatever that you need to make these batteries. And that ultimately, everything that I've read says that that has a bigger carbon footprint than the coal that we say we're going to get rid of. And we're not really getting rid of the coal because we need the coal to process and make these batteries. So there's a lot of hypocrisy. And oh, shame on the people that are feeding us this crap and, and lying to us, but shame on us for not pushing back and asking the right questions. And I, I do see that people are starting to do that. It's, it's very refreshing and, and comforting to me to see that I'm not the only one sitting around with these conspiracy theories running through my mind, that other people are thinking the way that I am. And I'm glad because we do need to think about that. They push the problem back on us, the problem that they created in our lives, because truly we make a larger portion of society than they do, so these problems that they've created in our environment impact us much more than they do them. They shield themselves with it with their money. But we deal with the fallout. So then you turn around and tell us that we're the biggest impact, so we need to change our lifestyles to fix it? I mean, there are solutions to these problems, and I do believe in honoring the earth and, and taking care of it. I mean, it's, it's the only house we have, okay? So... Why don't we start at the big problem makers, the, the in industry, the manufacturing, and first of all, understand that it can't just take place in your country. We are a globe, and it's global warming. The, the, the hint is in the name. If you just take care of the problem in the UK or in the United States, but you don't take care of the problem in Canada or China or Japan or wherever, and I'm just throwing out names for no specific reason, just to illustrate a point. If someone on the other side of the globe is continuing to do things that are bad for the environment, it's still going to impact you. So as a human race, we have to decide that we're going to live differently. We are still doing things not so different than at the dawn of the industrial age when no one really thought that long that it was going to impact things. 
I mean, everyone from the U.S. government on down has been dumping garbage in the ocean for 100 years, you know, like you would a refrigerator in the lake behind your house. And now it's accumulated over more than 100 years, and it, here we're paying the price. We need to do something to find real solutions to these problems that impact on a truly large scale beyond shutting the water off when you brush your teeth. You need to do things like talk to manufacturers, find truly clean ways of manufacturing. And while we're on that subject, you know, the business model changed a long time ago to instead of your brand being built on a quality product that has long-lasting benefits, they moved to we want to make something that's a piece of crap that you have to replace every few years because that'll keep our sales up. But see, companies used to make, they still made their millions building a, a refrigerator that lasted 25 years easy because they also manufactured the parts that you needed to fix it. And it was their service people that came out and worked on it. And there's always new people coming up buying new refrigerators. And the cycle might be longer because people who bought a refrigerator today might not be buying one for 20 years. But in the meantime, there's other Young people getting their first house, buying a refrigerator. But we want that instant gratification. We want everybody replacing the refrigerator every five years so that there's a much shorter cycle to our sales. We could build refrigerators that last 20, 30 years, that don't start leaking, that are still efficient, and that you can buy a part and repair it. But we don't. You ask a typical uh, appliance repair person in Nine times out of ten, the answer is going to be, oh, the part will cost so much that you may as well just buy a new one. How wasteful is that just for your profits? Uh, building materials. I mean, people have been building for as long as there have been people that wanted shelter, and there's all kinds of ways to build that don't involve chemicals and about a lot of terrible materials. But we've turned to those things because some of those houses would also burn down like a, a stack of dry hay. So can't we find an in-between? I think as a, as a globe, we're smart enough to find something that, that accomplishes both, that is within a price range that a normal person can afford it. You know, when we put up new subdivisions, instead of tearing down every large tree in that subdivision, and then we do the dog and pony show, but I planted 10 teeny ones. Okay. And 30 years from now, they're going to look great. But you also took away all the shade from that neighborhood. Little things like that. Things that we can do that would correct the problem. I think that's where we need to look. You know, there's, there's more to buy local and keeping it within your country than, you know, wanting to close off your walls and your borders. It's, it provides jobs. It, it, it creates a robust economy, but it also stops the shipping across the ocean all the time while they dump crap in the ocean. You know, the problem is that benefits large countries like the United States or continents like Europe, but when you get to smaller countries with smaller economies, they can't sell enough of the product within their economy to, for it to be advantageous. And then there's also the factor that we can produce it so much cheaper in another country with slave-level wages that, you know, 
we make billions and billions here. But these are the kinds of things, it's like a grassroots thing that we have to genuinely start getting real about instead of the dumb things. Like everybody run out and buy a Tesla. That's going to solve the problem. Everybody turn off the lights in your house. That's going to solve the problem. No, it's not. It's not. You know, it's like spitting on a forest fire compared to what large manufacturing is doing, large-scale logistics, moving products around the globe, what the one percenters are doing with their lifestyles. It's, it's just not going to solve the problem. But let's get real about that and have real conversations before the government takes billions of our dollars and says, hey, we're going to fix this for you. No, you're not. You're lying. So the environment, that's a, a big one that we need to think about more and look beyond the headlines. And then there's another big one. These mass shootings, hugely controversial topic. I think we can all agree on one thing. It is horrific. And in my opinion, it is very preventable. A long time ago in law enforcement, we shifted away from crime prevention and moved into law enforcement. And when I was first told this, it was by a friend who had been a police officer in two different cities here in Michigan, smaller communities, but he'd been in law enforcement a long time. And he said this to me, and I got to thinking about it, and I guess I'd never even thought of the distinction between the two. Crime prevention requires law enforcement to know their community, to know the problem people in it, to know what's going on, to have a presence, and to be immersed in the community in a way that they don't get, they aren't seen as strictly an enforcer. So there's some trust and there's some communication. Law enforcement is the exact opposite. You pull people over for tickets with full tactical gear on and your hand on your gun before you even know they're a threat. You go into every situation like you're raiding a village in a war zone, assuming that people are guilty or dangerous before they are proven to be such. And you're at a very high acuity level and many things go wrong. The other net result of this is you have people that exist in communities that have a problem. And, and this is a duality. There's a mental health problem globally that no nation really wants to address. It's difficult to get funding for it. It's difficult to, to get anybody who wants to bother to put time or money into studying it. And very little NIH grants go out for it. We instituted a ton of laws that were designed to protect people who are vulnerable, who have a mental health issue, because they were horribly taken advantage of and abused in the past. And yes, something did need to change, but we've had these laws in place long enough that I think we realize, okay, there's got to be a happy medium here. Because in the name of protecting them and their rights, we've ignored the fact that we haven't addressed their problem. And so they still are or could be a danger to themselves or other people. So now we have people in almost every instance of these mass shootings. The news stories come pouring out later on that this individual was known to have odd behaviors, red flag raising behaviors, known to have some issues. 
and it just piles up in the story. All these odd things that they did that were the warning signs and no one did anything. And the answer is always, well, they didn't break a law when they were following people, harassing people, saying things to them. They, we have to wait until they've broken a law. Okay, well, let's see. So we're going to wait until they actually hurt people to do something. And I understand that you don't want to just slap these people in handcuffs, but there are lesser crimes you can charge them with that will hinder them, that will get them in the system and get people looking at them. So here's what I propose. When they do these things, which maybe started with something as simple as harassing people, impeding people from, from conducting their business by being a nuisance, you can charge them with disorderly conduct. You can charge them with something like that that gets them in the system and maybe where someone can assess them. And then you have real programs in place to offer them help so you prevent the crime. And if law enforcement is geared at crime prevention, they can do this. They don't worry about, well, I don't want to write a ticket for disorderly conduct because that's just nothing. That's a minor crime and doesn't look like anything on my arrest record. I'm, I want to wait for the big thing, like when they actually assault somebody. You know, and then you have the added bad side effect of strictly law enforcement that police have become afraid to make a decision and do their jobs because they're afraid they're going to lose their job. They're going to be sued. And it's because they're entering the situation with too high of an acuity going on too high alert. So you can't be afraid to do your job just because some poor police officers have made poor judgments. Educate yourself. Practice the right way to handle these situations. Don't just throw your hands up in the air and quit. You know, or you have situations like that horrible shooting in Uvalde, Texas. I mean, nearly every law enforcement was present and yet no one acted. I mean, it, it, in, in a normal circumstance and in the other work situation, I would say there was very poor communication. There was, you know, no chief in charge of all of the groups. And who knows, but it looks as if some of the damage could have been mitigated had someone been in charge of all groups present, had someone had proper training that took away that fear that this situation is going to escalate and I'm going to end up in trouble for it. So it's, it's this whole behind-the-scene things. How do we prevent getting where we are in the future? Another one that's happening here in my state of Michigan, there was a young man that shot up a school, and now it's become national news that his parents are being charged because there were signs of his behavior and they failed to do something. Well, let me tell you, I, that's a, a, it's a tricky subject, but the school also had signs. There were meetings. They were aware of it also. Why was he not prevented from coming back to school until the issue was addressed? And yet I haven't heard anything about the people at the school being charged. It seems as if the parents did reach out and try to find help, and it wasn't easily found. People have criticized, well, you bought him a gun. Well, people do shoot for sport. 
And maybe it was a bad judgment, the combination of behaviors they'd seen and then giving him a weapon, but it sounds like they also had the weapon where it should not have been very accessible to him and he took some extreme measures to get it. But I don't know, but we have to make some decisions here as a society, people, at the low level that prevents these things from getting out of control. Here's another one. Roe versus Wade. They rolled it back. And my understanding is that the Supreme Court is saying that this should be something that goes to a vote. And that putting it in to begin with was putting them in a position of legislating. And it should have never happened. It should be something that went to a vote in the Senate and the House. I kind of agree with that. But the other big issue here that has always gone on with Roe is somewhere someone needs to make a decision about what age is that fetus a life? And it now has rights also. But we can't make a decision about age anywhere. We tell people you're 18 years old, you, if you're a young man, you have to register for the draft, which I realize we don't have it, but you still have to do it. You can join the military and be trained and sent with orders to kill people. You can buy a house, you can get married, you can have kids, you can do a number of things, but you can't have a drink. Because we understand that some part of your brain is not fully developed and shouldn't have alcohol mixed with it. But if we're accepting that that part of the brain isn't fully developed, then why do we allow these young people at 18 to make these other life-altering decisions? And why do we take 14 and 15-year-olds and try them as adults when we have understood in another area of the law that their brain is not formed yet? You know, I don't have the answers to all of these things, but these are things we should be thinking about. These are questions we should be asking and creating our own narrative rather than focusing so strongly on the narrative that's being presented to us. And it's like the man behind the curtain. It's being presented to us so that we don't create and control the narrative. We're the ones with votes. We're the ones with the money. We're the ones that support meaning middle-class, lower-class people, we support the rest of the world. So it is our duty and our obligation, if we want to argue about something, why don't we decide the topic? And why don't we really delve in and look at the problems and demand that the people we're paying do something about it? Not just put a Band-Aid on it and not distract us with the wrong angle of the problem. That's my thought for the day. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I will see you next week.